the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. As school starts up across the San Francisco Bay Area, no doubt within a short period of time, there will probably be some parents that aren't altogether very pleased. Not pleased, perhaps, with the curriculum that your student is being exposed to. Not pleased with the environment in which your child is being taught. For increasing numbers of parents, concerns not only just over the caliber of the curriculum, as a priority, but also the environment in which that curriculum is taught and how all of that goes to important points in developing not just a child's educational knowledge, scholastic schools, but ultimately their life skills. If you find yourself in that position, then we've got some good news. Joining us on the line is the principal of Bay Christian School. Many of you know it, no doubt, by its former name, Calvary Temple Christian School. And Principal John Jackson joins us. John, great to have you on the show. Yes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I would suspect in your years in Christian education, you probably run into this a lot, where parents send their kids off to school at the beginning of the semester, and maybe as there's been a grade change or maybe even a school change moving from, say, elementary to middle school, they're beginning to find out that they're not altogether pleased with what the child is coming home with, with some of the stories that are being told in relationship to either the environment or even getting a look at the curriculum and thinking, you know, some of this doesn't seem to be either A, up to par with the level at which I'd like my student to be learning, or B, up to par at the moral and spiritual level at which, an environment in which I'd like my child to be educated. How often do you run into those cases? Right. I think all the time. It's, uh, you know, it's not a thing where uh, parents necessarily feel like their kids are, you know, around terrible, awful people or anything like that in a secular environment, but just that their uh, kids are not being in an environment where they're supported, uh, you know, with the same values that they're teaching at home. So, uh, you know, if they, parents sometimes want to just get them in an environment where the values are supported, uh, you know, I don't, and we don't seek to kind of hide them from things that happen in the world because, you know, that's, that's where we live. So, uh, but I think, uh, there's a lot of value to having godly, uh, people guiding them and leading them and helping them, uh, through these problems. And a lot of parents want them in an environment where, you know, when things happen and kids do what kids do, then there's good influences there to help them and guide them and those type of things. And, you know, one of the kind of 
axioms that I try to live by just with my own kids is is to expose them to high impact people and high impact events and in this case it's uh, exposing them to high impact people godly excellent people that can help guide them through their their uh, decision making conflict resolution all that stuff meanwhile they're you know teaching them their academics and a family friend with a couple of kids in school who made the decision to uh, transfer their children out of public school and into a private Christian school. And, and and as this buddy of mine was telling me, he said, my wife and I made the decision not because the schools in our neighborhood were necessarily all that bad. In fact, on par here in the Bay Area, certainly as a national average, we've got some pretty decent schools here. He said, but my concern was we only have one shot to get this right. And I just didn't want to take the risk. Moreover, they were of the belief that the earlier that the moral and spiritual standards, skills, and knowledge is is implanted in them, the better chance that their children would have growing up following the Lord, loving the Lord, and being model moral citizens. And so their decision was largely based, John, on this notion that you only get one time, one chance to do it right. Right, and I, I've been thinking this lately and thought this for quite a while, actually, is, uh, you know, if the longer that you can have them in that environment, um, you know, I think some of us, we, we almost make the mistake of thinking, can I, you know, can I expose them early to get them used to what the world has? And uh, I just don't know if that's the right way to think about this. I think it's more at home. Our parenting is the key here. So our parenting can help the way that they think. And the way that they think is going to be what prepares them for the world. And if we can help them think as independent, godly, wise decision makers, then no matter what they've been exposed to when they um, get in the world and to college and high school and all those places, they're going to make wise decisions because they're going to listen to the voice inside them, which is the Holy Spirit, and their um, the decision-making that they've been uh, trained to make, they're going to listen to those voices instead of trying to listen to outside voices. So my point is that uh, the longer we can keep them in this environment, I think the better. Instead of thinking, well, if I can expose them earlier to those things, that's better for them to get used to it. So the example that I've been thinking lately is if I go on an airplane and I'm going to go to Miami and back, and I have a business class ticket on the way there and a regular ticket on the way back. When I'm on the way there, I'm not going to, and I'm in business class, halfway there, I'm not going to say, well, I think I'm going to go back and coach now because I want to get used to it because I know on the way back I've got to sit back here. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take every ounce of that business class the whole way there because, you know, you don't. it's a, it's a privilege, you love it. It's, it's, you know, you take every second of it you can. Uh, and then when you have to go back to coach, you go back to coach. And uh, I've been thinking that the same way with this. Just the longer that you can keep your kids in that environment, the longest, every ounce you can. I think you're going to look back at that and go, man, I'm sure, I'm sure glad we did that. And then our parenting is the key on raising kids that can think for themselves, that make wise decisions, uh, and that can 
you make godly decisions with the help of the Holy Spirit inside them. And at the end of the day, they'll have a lifetime to be exposed to the world, to be sure. One of the things that strikes me about your school, Bay Christian School, located in Concord, and I'll mention listeners, by the way, if you're considering making a change for your student and you'd like to find out more, you can go online to Bay Bulldogs. Dot com. That's the website for Bay Christian School. Learn more about the school, the curriculum, all of the programs that it offers. But one of the things that strikes me about part of the focus at Bay Christian is that you're not just looking at, as we've been discussing, knowledge, but life skills. And part of the goal of Bay Christian is to raise the next generation of leaders, communicators, givers, community contributors, and learners for life. Tell us more about that, John. So at the base of what we do is, of course, educating the kids. Our kids learn well. They test well. They do well in life. We, uh, Our students graduate from here, and they do all kinds of things. They, they become doctors. They become all kinds of things. And they become, you know, any kind of profession you can imagine, teachers and people that work in the bank, anything that you can imagine. But the so that's at the base. Of course, we're going to educate the kids, and they're going to do just fine there but a thought that we have here is would we rather have a smart kid or would we rather have a kind kid and if we have a really smart kid that scores well and tests really high and marks every box just fine but isn't kind to other people and isn't friendly to people and and can't show God's love to people then we feel like we've sort of failed in what we're trying to do because there's a whole lot more to educating a child than just having them be able to spell the words right or solve the math problem. And in the same way, if a child can answer all the questions but socially can't, say, order a sandwich for themselves when they go to Subway or can't introduce themselves to an adult in an unfamiliar situation. To us, that's as important as being able to mark all the right boxes because being educated with the formal uh, testing parts is one component, but treating people with kindness and having social skills and being able to do things out in society is another component of being able to succeed in society. And when they go on from here, we don't want a bunch of robots that can test well, but we want students and young men and women that can love God, care about other people, and help other people and become young men and women that are helping society and the church and their families in their own right when they leave here. Principal John Jackson is with us today. He is principal at Bay Christian School, formerly known as Calvary Temple Christian School. Information available on the web again at baybulldogs.com. That's baybulldogs.com. Bay Christian is participating in the KFAX Half Price Christian Tuition Back to School program. If you'd like to get more information about that, simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com. John, I understand that in addition to offering preschool, certainly elementary and middle school, you also have extended day to help folks out that are working. And if uh, people would like to get more information about the variety of programs that you offer, including um, tutoring services, concert band, athletics, and chapel as well. Um, can they come by and take a tour? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they can inquire on the website. Most of the questions are going to be answered on there uh, as far as what you've just mentioned and, and anything else. Uh, and then they can inquire on the website with either an application or an email. And then give us a call to ask any questions. And if they want to come by and uh, see the campus and take a look around, that's never a problem. All right, and again, you can get more information directly about Bay Christian at baybulldogs.com, or you can call area code 925-458-9870. That's 925-458-9870. Again, Bay Christian, just one of the many schools participating in the KFAX Half-Price Christian Tuition Program. Details available on that, as well as other schools throughout the Bay Area at kfax.com. Our thanks to John Jackson, principal at Bay Christian School for being with us today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift, where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme? Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it, we take a look at good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that <laughs> we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we are the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that, that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the, the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and, and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. 
We are in struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or, or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy kind of put us in the, in the norm, and all of a sudden now, that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public, and even executing people for not believing, that's, that's okay. Yeah, well, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism, and what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith in culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. We don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts, Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, faith group, is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue? Because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to play in all of that. And now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that. Um, we're, we're really 
much more countercultural than we realize. And, you know, we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture, it's a, a, it's, a, it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're, as Christians, part of that. There's this document, this, we document in the book, this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age, and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that 91% of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And, and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church. And so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those, those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do, was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And of course, the irony is, if you look at a couple of letter, uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the, the governmental engagement, um, as well as the, the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today one of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that in a lot of ways it's not just that the bible has less authority almost every institution has less authority in americans lives than it did a decade or two decades ago the bible has less authority the church has less authority government has less authority media political leaders uh, we're living in a celebrity age, and that's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god-of-self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this, is that you know the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read Scripture carefully, um, we can find that you know one of the bigger problems in, in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that, you know, you start your, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're irrelevant and extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith and that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views 
of some. And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones that fall, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church. And my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's, uh, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned, about the faithfulness of the of of the church, um, you know, in Revelation, where John's writing about uh, his his revelation of Jesus in the early chapters about the the seven churches in in um, in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, he basically says, you know, the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in Philadelphia and Pergamum and um, you know Ephesus, that that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh, in so many ways, in so many words. So I think this is one of the, the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme, um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our, our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know, teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully, that there's, there's a way to do this. And we, we actually think that, that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with uh, a truth in, from Scripture, not not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture, and so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do was to help people have those difficult conversations in their in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here too is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even uh, the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of uh, resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved, as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely, and, and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And, and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way, as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors, but there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that, it's truth and grace, uh, that that love really is is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in in the book we basically make the argument that 
that, that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves, that we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know, restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and faith. Um, and, and a lot of times uh, their, their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not not a matter of, of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion in giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of, like, what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're, you're asking, is, you know, we, I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy. Uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s, or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about, like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook and you kind of look up and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is how do we live and how do we um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern-day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to, draw, to write this, this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project, and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling was really our own, our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It, is, it does answer the questions of a complicated age. You're, you know, their peers, their, their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were, we were really trying to fortify our own children to give them uh, confidence that, that Christianity is going to matter in their, in their lives, again, for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. Is it important, too, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research, that we, that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they, they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, and the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust. Yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing, opposing viewpoints, behind someone who would have a very different point of view, 
to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And, um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest, uh, the most sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with, uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view, um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would, would seem to be at odds with his, you know, very message. And, um, and I think that's, that's so important for us as Christians today is to, to realize that, um, you know, think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by, uh, you know, argumentation about the, you know, Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize. And it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never dis- uh, never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about, you know, the, the, the truth is Christ and as he's changed our own lives. But, but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that, that, you know, we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, could he in, chat, in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or, or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate the love that God showed for us, that we understand to a degree at least the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross, we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do, and as David points out, not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply goodfaithbook.com. Dot org. That's goodfaithbook.org. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.